Welcome to the Tailored Life Podcast, the one and only fitness and nutrition podcast that goes way beyond just training and nutrition and helps you create a life by design. I'm your host, Cody McBroom, and with me is my co-host, Travis McQueen. Today, we got a Q&A. Got a lot of good questions today, guys. We got a lot coming from uh, Instagram. A few from the forum. Yep. Get a couple of those in. We have any announcements? Uh, we got a few. Uh, so... Did you, speaking of which, did you check the Spotify Q and A thing? Yep. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't know how to check it, so I didn't know. Um, are we putting that back in there? Yep. Okay. We haven't got any questions yet. It's a weird thing to like click trying to get on. some traction. Yeah. It's kind of a. It, I don't, I've never seen anybody do it, so I don't know if people know what to do so with it. Let's let's let them know. Yeah. yeah but, so if you're listening to this podcast from the so when you click on the podcast, obviously it'll fill up your whole screen. But uh, so if you're watching this right now like minimize it. So there's like that little arrow thing, you pull it down and then right before the description after the title, I believe. So there's like the title of what you're listening to. And then there's going to be like the show notes and description right above that. There should say like, ask a question for the Q and A or something yep. like that. And there's like a little green button on the right side. If you click that, you can actually just ask us a question directly through Spotify. Um, the other way is obviously to click the link that says, ask us a question in the description. So you can scroll down further. That'll open a browser window and you can ask us a question there too. But this kind of just allows us to get to you a little bit quicker, um, or for you to get to it a little bit quicker. Um, because humans are impatient and get distracted very easily and have a low attention span. So the easier we can make things, the better, the quicker, the better. Uh, that's why TikTok is so great. Um, I don't, I don't use it though, but, um, for people listening on, iTunes or Apple podcast or whatever it is, um, or Stitcher or Amazon has a podcast thing, Google play. Um, I'd be curious how many people actually use yeah. those things. I mean, it's maybe some, maybe, um, Spotify, but nonetheless, if you're anywhere else, you can click the link in the description of the podcast that says, ask us a question to open up a browser. That's also available on my Instagram. It's in the, the bio as well as the team's Instagram all the time. So you can click that to ask us questions. Um, or you could just follow me at Cody McBroom and you can ask on this story, which is where some of these came from as well. When I do the Q and a boxes, um, so that's how you get your questions answered. And I would highly recommend it because, uh, it's basically like a mini consultation or a coaching session in a podcast because you ask something and uh, we're able to give you an in-depth answer. And I like to think that we give a more in-depth response and, uh, no pun intended, tailored answer than most podcasts. Um, a lot of people are afraid to go too in depth because they want to keep things general to avoid going too far in depth. Cause sometimes I can bite in ass, but I like to take risks and I like to give as much advice as possible. Uh, and we do that here. And if you want even more of that, first plug for the podcast, taylorcoachingmethod.com slash online dash coaching. There's also a link in the description of this podcast. So if the podcast isn't enough, if you ask your questions all the time, um, and you know who I'm talking about, the people that we have said your name a thousand times by now, because you always ask questions, which shout out to you because you're engaging a ton and, and making use of this. However, it might be time for coaching. So if you are them, those people, or somebody else who is afraid to ask their question or thinks their question is too complicated because you need individualized help with your training and nutrition, that is where you go. That is what we do, and we would love to help you. Once again, that's tailoredcoachingmethod.com slash online-coaching. I will save all the rest of the announcements and stuff like that for later. Um, the only quick one, I guess I will say, just because we got all the boxes today, yeah. that massive shipment of clothing. Uh, so we are very close. It's almost time. It is almost time. I'm going to be uh, uh, posting some content. You can go follow it right now if you want because it's there, but uh, Tailored Life Apparel at Tailored Life Apparel. It is an Instagram. Um, I was pumped that I got that um, 
username handle. I actually tried and then it wasn't available. And then I tried again like two months later and it was available. Is it live? Yeah, it's live. Oh. Um, like, I, yeah, I mean, we'll have the uh, the website link in there. Maybe by the time you guys listen to this podcast, honestly, um, we're not allowing you to like snoop around the website because we uh, we're waiting until we like release the images of all the different things we actually created for yeah. the apparel um but it'll just be like a coming soon website uh, that you can bookmark or whatever but that'll be in there soon like i'm gonna start putting content together um we have some already shot and uh, i have some like graphics and stuff put together um so all that will be coming out very soon but i just wanted to tease you guys a little bit more because it's almost here yeah. i'm excited about it so let's get into some questions all right we got the first one coming from joanna it says i'm working on healing hypothalamic amor uh amenorrhea and having a hard time mostly mentally on how to reduce exercise and also increase calories. Have you worked with clients who do not have to eliminate exercise completely? I worked hard to get where I am with my body just to realize my health is suffering. Do you have any tips? Good question. And uh, good job, dude. You got it. Amenorrhea, amenorrhea the first time. Uh, <laughs> Hypothalamic? I think I, I think it's one of those things where people like there's people say creatine, some people say creatine, some people I know weird um, or hyper hypertrophy or hypertrophy or hyper. Now I'm fucking it up yeah. because I'm trying to think of the different ways. Um, tomato, tomato. My grandma used to say cats up for ketchup. Very weird. I don't know if that's a Canadian thing or I knew somebody said dishwasher. Oh, that's uh, that's like an Oregon thing. I think my whole dad's side family they all Warsher. say washer. Uh, Washington, um, yeah, all those, um, there's other words that they do that with too, but yeah. yeah, um, I think that's an Oregon thing. If my Canadian listeners know, is cats up a thing or is my grandma just crazy? Does she just say cats up for no reason? I think it's a thing. Yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, I'm not going to try to address the situation cause you obviously know what you got to do already. Uh, but for those listening who don't know what this is, it's essentially, um, so the hypothalamus is what she's referring to as far as like the, the actual part of the body and the brain and the, the glands that actually are sending the signal. There's obviously something wrong with it and it is causing this issue of amenorrhea um, as well as, uh, which is basically, it's a byproduct or a symptom of chronic undereating or chronic overtraining or a combination of both. Um, so there is this, they see this a lot like reds in sports or relative energy deficit syndrome in sport. Um, and then, uh, the female athlete triad is a very common one. It's basically the same thing. Um, but essentially this happens when we diet too hard, uh, train too hard or do both or, um, get too lean. And usually it's, it's in my experience when people actually get, um, especially on the, the, like, reds or anything like that it's usually because they get so lean from training and dieting too hard too long um, but there are people who have sensitive hormones who get there a little bit sooner so what I would say is this is like number one it's hard to address this question without like going through the weeds of all the different things but like you know that if you are in this position and it is because you're too lean then you gotta put on some body fat which that's like the main thing people don't want to hear is that you have to sacrifice the body you created, which for some people, your standards might be a little too high. You know, like you might be too lean. And if that's your standard of what you want, well, what you want is just not sustainable. You know, like especially women, but people in general aren't supposed to be shredded year round. So my answer to you is, yes, I have had clients 
who have gone through this and other things similar to it where we could keep exercise in. We didn't have to completely remove exercise um, and we could fix the issue. However, most of the time, I mean, you definitely have to lower the amount of exercise you're doing no matter what, but I, I haven't ever completely removed it with any of the clients and not that there's a ton of clients who go through this because it's not something that super, super common or something we want to see too often, but um, most of the time we can just reduce it. And sometimes you reduce it a lot, but you don't need to always remove it completely because in my opinion, if like that's your stress outlet and that's like your identity, mm-hmm. it's like even for me, if I had an issue and you told me I could never train, like or not never, but like you shouldn't train anymore, I would have a really tough time with that. I would, ha- I would do everything I could to figure out a way to train to not continue to damage my body, which basically boils down to if you were doing way too much volume, you got to do less volume. If you're doing way too much intensity, you got to do less intensity. If you're doing too much cardio, do less cardio. You just got to do less. You got to balance out the recovery and the training stress. Um, but if you're too lean, part of the reason you need to do that is just so you don't burn as many calories. So you could reduce exercise or you could eat more food or you could do a combination of both so it's less of each. Either way, you have to allow yourself to put more body fat on your body. And if you allow yourself to put more fat, body fat on your body, you could essentially train more. So what I would say is like the best case scenario from a science perspective is like do less, eat more, allow yourself to gain a little bit of fat on purpose and then start training more but still keep eating more. So if you raise your calories by 500 and train less so that you can gain some body fat and get your health right, the second your health gets right, you can start increasing your uh, training volume because that's what you love doing, but you keep your calories up to where you raise them because that's what's supporting your body's health. And if you slowly increase training, it shouldn't wreck your, you again, right? As long as you don't take it too far and start doing excessive amounts of training and cardio. But um, I don't think you need to remove it completely. I, I don't think that's necessary. Um, and mentally, it's just about rem- remembering that, you know, it's kind of like the, what's the saying? Um, when you like travel and it's like the heart makes, or uh, time away makes heart grow fonder. Like you always come back, you miss your wife or, yep. or husband or whoever, like a ton. It's kind of the same thing. Like take a break from training. You're going to love it even more when you come back. Right now, you might be going through the training because it's part of your routine. It's part of your identity, but you're miserable in it because you can't push hard enough. You feel achy. You don't feel like energetic in the gym. Just give it a break. Like if you love it so much, let it go away for a little bit so you can come back sooner and love it more. You know what I mean? I think that's the biggest thing, especially if you know that if you keep going down this path, you're not going to be able to do it at all ever. And that's a that's the worst thing you can do. So create the health you need, step away from it for a little bit, just so you can get back into it. Um, and, and you think about that long-term aspect and that should be the motivation you need in order to get, get right, heal yourself and then come back to it. Yeah. Love it. All right. We got a next question coming from Katie Johnson. It says front rack versus back rack barbell position for quad activation. I've noticed in the four day, four day a week, pot, uh, power body, power building program, the quad focus exercises such as the elevated reverse squats and barbell cyclist squats are loaded on the back. I'm curious if there is much of a difference in quad activation between front rack and back rack positions. Um, so the power building program she's referring to is in the tailored trainer. So Taylor, or it's, what is it? Taylor dot or Taylor dash trainer.com. Um, it's on the website too. check it out. Uh, that's one of my favorite programs in there. So, I believe she said front foot elevated reverse squats. Is that what she said? Four day a week power building program. The quad focus elevated reversed elevated reverse squats. 
So she's probably referring to elevated reverse lunges, um, which is a squat pattern. But um, in the program, it's, it's a reverse lunge for those listening. So you're standing on a plate and you're reverse lunging off of the plate. Um, <clears throat> so the so this is where we get <clears throat> excuse me into semantics a little bit, which is fine because I like doing that. But if we're looking at the back loaded squat versus the front loaded squat, we have to. There's a few things we need to look at. We need to look at. Uh, the literature, obviously, what does this, the research actually say about these two loading patterns for the squat and quad activation? Um, then we can look at uh, what we know about mechanics in the real world and exercise variation, um, because sometimes that can't be, if you're controlling the vari variables properly in a study, it eliminates some of the individual variances in training real people, and I'll explain why. And then we have to look at the actual person doing it, because you're different than me and different than her, right? So in research, I want to actually say that there's not a significant difference. Like I think when they did the research on quad activation for front versus back loaded squats, I don't think there was much of a difference. Um, and they've done this with stance too. So you would think close stance is a little bit better for quads. And I would agree, but research actually shows you get just as much range of motion um, on the quads and just as much activation on the quads on a wide stance. So, um, and there might be multiple studies and maybe some refute that, but I know the study that I've dig into, I, I want to say Greg Knuckles, Trunker by Science was the one that wrote the article about it. Um, I'm pretty sure it showed wide stance was the same. But point being is when we look at those research, you also have to ask like, okay, now what are the, the variabilities they're trying to control for the study's sake? So one of the things that you're going to control in a study to see the activation differences is the load, right? So if you're doing a front loaded squat at hundred pounds and I'm doing a back loaded squat at 300 pounds, where are we going to see more activation? Probably 300 pounds. It's three times the weight. Um, if we equate for volume, you might have to do four times as many reps. Now, where are we going to see activation? Could be the same. You could actually have more activation because you do more reps, but is that actually better for training or does that just cause more damage, which isn't always directly meaning more growth. It just is correlated, right? Totally. So then it gets difficult there. And then you go, okay, well, what if somebody has, and this is where I get like into the exercise selection stuff. What if somebody has long femurs versus short femurs? Somebody who has short femurs is probably going to get just as much, if not more, out of a backloaded squat because when they squat, they're in an upright position and it is a very quad dominant. Somebody with long femurs is going to be very hip dominant. They're going to get more glute activation out of a squat than the person with uh, short femurs. So a long femur individual will sit back into it and they'll probably get less, uh, less quad dominant activation. If they put the bar on the front side, now they will get more because center of gravity, right? Simple. And especially if you elevate your heels, because now I'm leaning forward with the heel elevation and I'm loading it in the front. So the center of gravity of the load is directly over my quads versus on my back when I'm sitting into a glute dominant squat with no elevation of my heels or uh, front loaded position. So we can't control those variables because in a study we can't go like, you know, everybody in the study essentially has to, uh, from my assumption, based on how most research is done, would have to go into it going, okay, we're going to have about this width of stance. You either elevate your heels or you don't for everybody. It's not like, hey, if you want to elevate them, you can. Because now it's like, okay, was it the back loaded or was it the heel elevation, right? Or is it the front loaded? There's too many variables. So you have to basically have everybody has, has or doesn't have elevated heels. Everybody is or isn't close, moderate, or wide stance. Everybody has to accumulate or equate volume, which means if you can back squat more than you can front squat, it's going to lower your quad activation doing a back squat because you have to back squat lighter because you're in the study that is comparing to front squats. So if you're, if you can back squat 500 pounds and I tell you to get, you're in the study for quad activation, but you, you only squat with hundred pounds for this. 
you're not going to get that much quad activation because it's so light compared to your one rep max. So again, I'm not citing this off of the study, but I'm just thinking in generalities, when you know research is going to equate for things, it kind of eliminates the individualization of an exercise. So it's hard to say for sure. Now, if it was like, is front or back loaded squats better when your heels are elevated with a close stance with individuals with long femurs and who have been training for five years or more and have a uh, one rep max greater than 250 pounds, which sounds crazy. You're smiling, but they do studies like that. They literally do. There's a qualification. You have to be, have been training for a certain amount of time. You have to have a certain one rep max relative to your body weight to show that your experience and your strength is at a certain point. And that's great because it does make the criteria even more narrow. I don't know what the, the research on the front versus back loaded was. Um, but when we add in all these factors, it basically leads us to the third point I was going to make with what is that individual, right? So I can guarantee that I'm going to get probably more um, activation out of uh, a back squat. I won't unless my heels are elevated. See, this is where it's different. So like if I'm trying to get the most out of quads, for me, I'm doing backloaded squats with heels elevated in a closer stance. Because when I'm in a closer stance, I know I, f- I can sit into the squat better. I can stay more upright. If my heels are elevated quite a bit, I can do that. If they're not, I'm, I'm not going to do a back squat. Um, and then with the back squat, I can go heavier because I don't have to worry about racking it in the front. So once your strength gets to a certain point, you're almost guaranteed to get more out of a back squat simply because you can't you can't rack as much weight in the front because now your core and your upper body, your traps, they're all doing so much work to hold that weight. Whereas on the back rack, I'm kind of just resting on my back. You know, I can just chill there. So at a certain point, your strength gets to a level where you got to manipulate things like your stance, your hip width, your, the heel elevation, stuff like that in order to be able to overload the quads more. And I even know some bodybuilders who are so strong, but they don't have that range of motion or they don't have the mechanics for that, that they use Smith machines or hack squat machines or leg presses because it allows them to mimic that squat pattern and overload their quads. So you have to ask yourself what allows you to overload best. Um, Now, if your front squat strength is just as good as your back squat strength, I probably would say that in a lot of cases, the front squat's going to activate the quads more because of the center of gravity. The weight is over your quads, quite literally. But it's very rare that that happens. Very, very rare. Unless it's a skill-specific thing. So if you're an Olympic lifter, you have to front squat all the time because you're doing clean and jerks, you're doing clean and presses, you're doing clean and front squats. That's what you do. Yep. But you also train the back squat a lot too. So, But point being is if you're really that good at front squats, maybe. Um, um, and then the other thing too is like, and this is again with the individual, like, I will work with some guys that we will get more uh, quad. And this would apply to girls too, just not as much because typically, I mean, it's science. Men have larger upper body frames and muscles so they can support more weight up top um, and typically have stronger upper bodies. But I have some guys that I will purposely choose front squats for quad hypertrophy instead of back squats. And it's not because they would, it gives them more quad activation, but it's because they've had low back issues. So, even though I could overload the quads better, theoretically speaking, with a back squat, I know after rep five, their back's going to be toast either right then or tomorrow. And if they, it's tomorrow, they can't train tomorrow. If it's today, they're not even going to get to a weight that allows them to accumulate volume to grow their quads. So that's where you have to consider all these different factors. Um, so what activates quads the most? I'd say it's tie. It depends on all these different things. Um, like if all things created equal, I would say back squat only because you can overload it more typically. Um, the problem is, is that not everybody can get into a high bar 
chest upright quad dominant position for a back squat to allow that to happen. Mm. Some people need a front squat to do that. Or they do something like like I do all the time with the Hatfield squats where I'm, I have a safety bar and that then I hold the, the fucking squat rack and lean into it. I don't really have to worry about anything except my quads. And that allows me to overload it because I don't even have to hold the bar. You know, it's easy. Um, er. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's simpler. But it's just – it's manipulating things to allow overload. And I think that's where some people get so married to certain exercise variations and, like, just classic lifts and stuff. Where I'm like, I mean, why do you have to deadlift or back squat or bench press? Like, do any press, do any squat, any deadlift variation that is best for you. I don't care if you're using a specialty bar, a regular bar, or no bar at all. Like, movement is movement. Yeah. Like, let's overload the movement for you and not be married unless you're competing in powerlifting, you know? So Cool. All right, we will move on to the next question. It is from Martin Cypers. Uh, it says, how much mass can you gain in a year naturally after two years of training? I think I only have gained two kilograms. Um, so to your credit, two kilograms sounds worse than it is for us Americans um, because that's 4.4 pounds. So it's not too bad. 4.4 pounds of pure muscle. Now I would ask you, did you gain a total of 4.4 pounds, two kilograms, or did you gain eight and lose four and now you're a net four? Because that's much better. <laughs> like I'm hoping that's the case. Um, I also still don't understand why we use pounds. I, we're the only place in the world. Everybody else uses kilograms. Everybody else uses kilometers. We're the only ones that use our metrics. You know what? Yeah, absolutely. It's just, it makes sense to me because we've always used it. Yeah. But it's interesting. Exactly. Yeah. I don't understand kilometers. Yeah. I don't even know how far a kilometer is. No idea. <laughs> like, relatively speaking, that could be either. way longer than I imagine. Somebody's like, oh, it's just 20 kilometers away. I'd be like, okay, are we tomorrow? Or is that a 10 minute drive? Um, anyway, so I did a little bit of research on this one um, just because it's been a while, but there is some like theoretical stuff based on science, but it's not like, it's not really something you can, I, I believe at least, you can't like definitively say that the average human being can gain X amount of weight in, do you say a year? Uh, yeah. I think you said a year. Yep. Two years of training. Two years. Oh. How much mass can you gain in a, in a single year naturally after two years of training. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah, like there's no definitive answer. I think that you can just say you, the human body can build blank amount in one year. Like, I don't think you can say that. Um, it's also different for men and women. Um, however, there is some research on, uh, what's called your maximum genetic potential. And they talk a lot about fat free mass, which is anything in your body. That's not, uh, fat, fat free mass. And the reason that's important to understand that is because it also means organs, bones, tendons, ligaments, stuff like that. However, if you're an adult, you're probably not going to be growing anything but muscle at that point. Um, maybe some tendons and ligaments, I would, but um, everything else basically stays the same. Um, there is some cartilage in your body that continues to grow. In fact, did you know that's why really old people have huge ears? You ever notice that? Like, like grandparents stuff, just have, like your grandpa just has massive ears. I have not noticed that, but I'm not arguing with that. So, um, maybe my grandpa just has massive ears, <laughs> but, uh, now you're going to notice now every older yeah. dude you're going to see, you're going to be like, holy shit, these guys have really big ears. But, um, I read somewhere that the cartilage, so who knows if this is actually, actually accurate, but it makes sense The uh, some of the cartilage and tissue and stuff in your ears. And I believe your nose as well. They actually never stop growing. They just grow at a very slow rate, but that's why like 
you see somebody and then you see them at 20 and then you see them at 70 and they have a huge nose and ears now. And it's because that cartilage is kind of too strong. Very weird. Um, but uh, the natural genetic muscular potential, um, there is some like actual formulas that are based on, on some research. Um, they correlate well with what has been seen. So they look at like, okay, this individual as a natural bodybuilder who is a famous bodybuilder or whatever, or these case studies that we documented have gained X amount in their life, right? And then we try to create a formula. I believe this is how it was created. We try to create a formula to determine how we can like take that information of like the average of what all these people have built in their life of like muscle and then create a formula so we can all figure out how much we can build. And it's pretty weird. Like you got to like measure your wrist circumference and then like uh, some your height or something like that and your weight and like you, you do this weird calculation and it'll tell you how much you can gain. Um, I remember doing it and I think I landed on like I could be 205 pounds at my like absolute max genetic potential the, mm. or maybe it was one, it was either 195 or 205, which I mean, that's, I mean, dude, I'm 171, 72. Like that's big. I'm me, thinking about me gaining another 20 to 30 pounds of just pure muscle I'd be, I'd be a fucking freak. Yeah. Like people would think I'm on steroids for sure because that's no fat. That's fat free mass. That's your potential. Huh? Apparently. Yeah. But then you go, okay, well, what does potential require? Does that require me to be training twice a day, every day, sleeping nine hours a day? Like, and I, I think it does. So it's an unrealistic genetic potential. It's what my human body has the potential to do, but my lifestyle would never condone. And most people don't. Which is also why it's like, is this a, a formula that you even want to waste your time doing? Because then you just always feel like you're puny compared to what you could be. You know what I mean? Like totally. that's just kind of depressing. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Like I've read uh, like 40 to 50 pounds for men is like, uh, and like I think it was like 20 to 35 for women or something like that. Um, is like the average numbers. And, and that's, and that would make sense. You know, like if I think of like when I lost weight and I got to like my like smallest after high school and everything, I was about, um, 150 pounds I think and then I just started putting on size and now I'm I said at around 170 to 175 pounds which means if I was to gain 20 pounds I would be about 50 pounds yeah you know what I mean so it makes sense like um but I believe like that's what you can expect to see is like a total of uh so for you uh what like that's like 20 to 40 kilograms or something like that or not 40 kilograms sorry 20 to 30 20 to 25 15 I don't fucking know do the math you said it's (laughs) 4.4 yeah pounds uh, no, 2.2 pounds per kilogram. Oh, so how many kilograms? I mean, you could just Google. How, 20 pounds? Yeah. Uh, 40 pounds in kilograms. Is it 22.2? It is. Maybe before. 40 pounds, 2 kilograms. It's going to be 18. 18. Um, in your lifetime. Yep. Not in a year. In your lifetime. Damn. And then you go, okay, well, like, what does it require? Like, what do they say is, like, you're at the point where you're so advanced in your training, you're not really going to be gaining much weight at all anymore. Usually that takes at least a decade, if not two. Um, so then you could say like somewhere within the next 20 years, if you were really serious about training, um, you would have the potential to gain up to that amount of weight. Mm. You know, um, So I think that makes sense. Uh, and if you really break down per year, honestly, four kilograms is not that far off of that. Really, it's actually really good. I think people underestimate or like overestimate what they can build in a year. Because even like... Uh, I built, it, I gained 16 pounds at, uh, in 2019. That was like, what, 
Was that a, a year or was that a little less? It was like 11 months. Yeah. So basically a year. Okay. Um, before that, I was at maintenance for a little while too. So I, w- I didn't go from like diet straight to surplus, but I was at maintenance for a few months at least. And then I went into a surplus for 11 months straight, lifting six days a week. So it was the highest volume I've ever trained consistently. Um, I also will say that I didn't consistently sit in a surplus to build muscle for probably like two or three years at least before that because I was constantly trying to market myself and a lot of trainers do this too. They get lean and they try to stay lean for too long and that holds them back from building muscle. Totally. Now, I'm intentionally staying lean now because I don't really give a shit about building more muscle at the moment. It's just not what I care about currently, but who knows if that'll change. But point being is, I think I was able to do that as a more advanced lifter because I took so much time away from actively trying to gain mass. I basically stayed the same weight for two to three years straight. And then I was like, fuck it. I'm going to intentionally gain weight. But then you got to think about it too. Like I dropped half of that. So if I gained 16 pounds, I probably realistically built like eight to 10 pounds of muscle. Yeah. There you go. You know? Um, so, but here's the other thing too. If I were to do that again, the next year and try to keep gaining, it would have reduced in half guaranteed because I just spent 11 months building muscle. You know what I mean? Um, now you've only been training for two years. I think you could squeeze out more muscle than that in a year for sure. Um, but it just takes, uh, intelligent training, intelligent dieting and just hard work. Sometimes people just don't train enough. And I think at about that two to three year mark in your gym, you have to start training harder and like hitting that RIR. That's actually really important. Um, because after about two years, two, three years, you're going to be done really just getting, newbie gains off of anything you do you know um so you're gonna have to probably make a more methodical approach yeah but how can they do that you can sign up for coaching <laughs> or hire uh, uh download the taylor trainer app cool all right we will move on to the next question it comes from camille it says i am a trainer and i motivate all my clients and sometimes it is hard to even motivate myself do you have any tips on how i should uh do this. Maybe I should do coach one-on-one with you. I think you should. <laughs> um, Easy question. Yeah, no, I think uh, I, I actually do. I do think I actually j- literally just had a conversation about this. Uh, um, so April, if you're listening, shout out to you, uh, who I just got a phone with, who is coming on board to work with us at Tailored Coaching Method. And we talked about this. Um, she's an ex-athlete. And I use this as an example because um, she she kind of she kind of expressed like feeling like she should just be able to do it on her own because she's she was an athlete you know she was a star high school and college athlete D one like she knows what she's doing and I, and I like reassured her I was like hey I've been doing this for twelve years I still hire a coach like at no point do you ever like you're so good that you don't need help ever yeah. you know what I mean like. Um, and I think too, like the other thing to think about is like, especially in an athlete's case, it's like, I, I shouldn't need help. I did this my whole life, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, but who'd you do it with? A coach. And a team. <laughs> so you had a coach and a team. Like that's, I mean, that's even more support than you can imagine, yeah. you know, and somebody pushing you and then camaraderie with other teammates trying to be competitive with you and stuff. Um, and for coaches, it's, it's the same exact thing. Like the, the reality is, is number one, we're human beings. So we, we thrive off of support, accountability, tribalism, community, culture. We want to be a part of something and that's just the human need. So we're going to do better and be more successful with that. Number two, research supports accountability, improving success, period. So if you don't have accountability, even if you know what the fuck you're doing, you're going to be more successful if you have somebody to check in with. And that's why like even in points of like maintenance or not really creating change, I still valued coaching because I'm checking in. And even if I don't change anything and I'm just checking in, I just know 
I'm literally becoming more successful because I'm checking in with you. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's that aspect of it. And it's just accountability. Um, number three, I, I think that the whole like self-made thing is fucking stupid. Like the amount of coaches, trainers, uh, dietitians, nutritionists that we work with at Taylor Coach Method who hire us because they're like, I, I spend all of my effort and energy focusing on my clients and giving them all of this information and giving them my energy and my thought process and everything. I need somebody to do it for me in return. Yep. You know what I mean? Okay, cool. Come on board. Let us do that for you because it is draining. I mean, you're in a people service, you know, it's actually funny. Like I don't remember who, I think I was talking to my brother about this, but like you can actually kind of become a hermit when you do a very social job. It's very weird. Like you're almost constantly interacting with people and talking and giving and stuff. And this, I'm speaking for myself, obviously, where a lot of times when I'm out of here, I'm actually like a hermit. Like I want to like just be home. I want to chill. I don't really want to go out. Like even, even I had to like actually start telling myself to be more, um, uh, outgoing with neighbors. Oh, partially because I was like, I want to get the tailored name out to the neighborhood and everything. There's so many homes in that, in that area. But like all the neighbors all gather around in the cold side and play with the kids. And I, my like, what I want to do is like just sit in the lawn chair and just watch Blakely. I don't want to move. I just want to sit there. I don't want to talk to anybody. And that sounds like so pathetic. But I'm like, all right, I got to like, I'm going to go walk into the circle and talk, you know. And then I have fun and and I am an outgoing person when I try to be. But like you pour your energy into people all day, every day as a coach, especially if you're in person doing it. Like the last thing you want to do is do it for yourself. Totally. So I think there's a, there's a ton of reasons. And again, nobody's self-made. That's like the stupidest thing ever. I've had countless coaches, mentors, guidance, and even the things that I didn't pay somebody to physically tell me to do or hold me accountable of. I went and researched what other people did and then mocked it for myself. Yeah. Like I didn't. That was help. Yeah. I didn't invent anything. Yeah. Like literally. I want to. <laughs> <laughs> I really want to. I have a lot of good ideas, but they have nothing to do with our business at all. Um, I had a really good idea for a fucking... Uh, Easy. Okay. Yeah, I don't want to actually... <laughs> I'll have to get a patent on some of those. Yeah. I've actually said things that I'm like, this would be great. Uh, and then Shannon's like, oh, I looked it up. It actually was already already made. I was like, fuck. Ruined my vibe. Yeah, and it wasn't successful. So I was like, thank God I didn't do it. Cool. That was a great question, Camille. We, will, we got one more. One is coming from Brittany. It says, how to find the actual range for maintenance calories for a client. I know using a TDEE calculator gives an estimation, but is there a way to give a client their range or just say, okay, your maintenance is 2,100, give or take some? So essentially, is there an exact way to do it? Yeah. Um, we might be able to answer another one because honestly, this there's really not. like It's not going to be an in-depth question or answer. The only thing I'm going to tell you is that you're right. There isn't. Um, I think the best strategy to do is use multiple forms of creating that formula and it'll give you a, a, a variety of different targets and you just know you're going to be somewhere within that, you know, within, I, like, and this is where it's hard now. Cause like naturally I want to say five to 10%, but then people are going to listen to that and be like, oh, your maintenance range is five to 10% above and below what the calculation is. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true yeah. <laughs> at all. It could be fucking 20. I just naturally say that. So use Harris Benedict, use Mifflin St. Gior, use the just old school, like times eight times 10 times 12 times 14, you know, like for like extreme fat or like fat loss women, fat loss men, maintenance women, maintenance men, gainer, like there's different ones like that. They're all very generic. And then you can obviously track somebody's weight for one to two weeks, track their calories for one to two weeks, average it out. You know, if they're, if they're maintaining 170 pounds and at the end of two weeks, their average caloric intake is 2000, then that's probably about their maintenance, you know? Um, but 
it's it's very hard to say because uh, if somebody was maintaining at 2,000 calories and they their uh, protein was super low and then you do the calculation, it says 2,400. Well, you could probably add 400 calories of protein. They won't gain any weight and they'll still sustain that weight yeah. because protein is very thermic. So like there's, you know, there's sometimes people get worried because they're like, well, this calculation is so much higher than what I'm actually eating. And that's why because you're under eating protein or you're doing something that's off or you're not tracking on the weekends when you eat 3,000 calories instead of two. Um, so who really knows? And then I would say your experience kind of tells you what that range is because, uh, based on the research on metabolic phenotypes and the differences between metabolisms, as well as just my experience in general, I've just come to find that everybody's very different. You know, like some people have bigger ranges than others. Like I know for me, I can maintain my weight very easily. Like I'm, st- I mean, shit, dude, like I've probably added my calories are at like 2750 now. 2,750 calories and I finished the diet for the photo shoot like the last bit I think I was at like 1,700 calories so literally 1,000 calories yeah I'm maintaining my weight like a few pounds above the photo shoot I reverse slow but also like my weight like I have a huge range and you're I think mean, it's you're at maintenance now yeah yeah um I just bumped my calories up a little bit because I wasn't gaining I wasn't losing I was like fuck it might as well bump them up a little bit um see how high I can get the maintenance but like essentially I can, you know, if I drop, if I drop 50 carbs right now, I might lose a little bit of water and then I'd probably maintain because my range is super big. I might add up to 50 more carbs and I'd probably still maintain, you know, like I have to go to aggressive places. So I have the metabolic phenotype that's, uh, I believe that's a, a, a shifty. So like basically if I really want to gain size, I got to be aggressive and I really got to slap on some calories. If I really want to cut, I'm probably going to add cardio and I'm going to have to make an aggressive drop for my calories because my body will adapt quickly. Somebody who doesn't adapt quickly is going to have a smaller maintenance range because they can make a small adjustment and it takes forever for their body to catch up with that adjustment, right? So they could eat 50 carbs less and they start losing quickly. Whereas I eat 50 carbs less and nothing happens because my body just slows down certain things to help me maintain. So there's no way to tell. Everybody's range is different. I think the best thing that you can do as a coach is use multiple forms of, of calculations. And then also, I think it's important to um, just have a good understanding of this so you can explain it to your clients because then it's easier to program these things and tell them like, hey, this is what we're going to do. This is why we're going to do it. And it's going to take a little time for us to know exactly how your metabolism is. But that's part of coaching. It's me learning how your body responds to things. And now once I work with clients, I know whose metabolism does what. And so when we go through cuts to bulks or maintenance or you diet, diet breaks, I know how to make those adjustments because I know how their body's going to respond. Totally. You know what I mean? So yeah. it depends. Cool. But. All right. We have one more here from Beck Low 12. It says, when, when, you, when you have been diagnosed with hormone imbalances, how should you approach diet and training? Really good question. Um, obviously, it depends. So, th- it depends on the person, but I want to make this clear too. I don't think it depends as much on what kind of hormone imbalance it is. So, I think a lot of people would assume that I'd say, well, it depends on, and then it would be if you are low testosterone or if you are low uh, thyroid or if you're high thyroid, so if you have hyperthyroidism or whatever it may be. And although it does in some scenarios, for the most part, it- it's about just balancing them out. The thing I would say is like, if it is the only two situations I can think of that are very hormone specific, um, that changes my recommendation would be hyperthyroidism because it's speeding up. Um, when you're hype, when you're hyperthyroidism, your metabolism is going a little bit faster than normal. Your thyroid is on hyperdrive. Your heart rate spikes really easily and goes 
pretty constant. Therefore, stress, anxiety, cortisol goes up quicker. The last thing I'm going to do is go, hey, let's do high intensity, high intervals, low rest periods. Like, no, we're going to go, hey, let's do tempo work. Like, I want to do the opposite of what you want to do because what you want to do is what cranks your body up further and causes more stress, totally. right? Um, but if we think of, and, and I would say, I, I believe it's called Addison's disease, uh, but it's, a, it's, it's either Addison's. Yeah, because I was going to say Atkins. I think it's Addison's. Um, Atkins diet is not what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, the Addison's disease, I believe, is where, uh, and I might be butchering, but it's basically the one I'm talking about is where you have chronically elevated cortisol levels. So your cortisol is just constantly up. Again, I'm, it's not really actually that much different because even with the other ones, I'm still going to focus on more recovery uh, because at the end of the day, if you have hormone imbalance, what you don't want to do is overtrain overdo uh, volume, overdo intensity, overdo anything. You want to actually create balance and you want to have optimal recovery. So, but the only reason it might be different is because um, it just gives you another uh, reason to stay cautious of um, training volume or intensity because especially training volume, but those two things typically crank up cortisol a little bit more. Now, um, if you have just general and hormonal imbalances just across the board, or you're just trying to avoid getting that place, um, I would give you the same exact advice I would give somebody who's going into a deficit. I think that the best type of training is the type of training that will build strength, um, and build or build muscle. So the best type of training for fat loss is the type of training that will preserve strength and preserve muscle. So if you have hormone imbalances, you might not even be in an optimal place to build strength or muscle. So you're going to be in a place of trying to preserve muscle and strength, which fundamentally is the same as building. It's just a little bit less. So instead of doing five or six days a week of lifting at high volumes to build muscle or high intensities to build strength, you're going to do three or four days a week of a little bit less volume. We have that, I would even say like four days of lower volume so you have that frequency throughout the week, but we're not pushing our volume or our intensity too high to where it's a lot to recover from because your body's not in an optimal place to recover from what it's already got to do of just balancing hormones, right? Um, and if you're in a deficit, even more so because you don't have enough calories coming in to help with that recovery process, which is why it's the same. But ultimately, when anybody has hormone imbalances, um, it, it's a very, you got to be in the gray area. It's a very double-edged sword because strength training building muscle on your frame, things like that, improve hormones. Training too much or too hard or with too much volume increases cortisol, which is a stress hormone that typically has a cascade of events that ends up leading to dysfunctional um, hormones in other areas, um, especially things like testosterone or thyroid. So you got to be careful. What's the right amount? It depends because if somebody is a very experienced lifter and then they get into this hormonal place, their low volume is going to be different than the person who is brand new to lifting and is starting out with fucked up hormones. Totally. You know what I mean? So it really depends. But the best advice is simple. Like do enough to stimulate, not annihilate for lack of better terms. I mean, like you want to have that recovery and then don't, you know, if you're going to diet, it's a very small deficit. Um, yeah. I mean, you're not going to build a lot of muscle with hormone dysfunction, especially if you're in deficit. So if you are trying to lose weight and, and you're dealing with this, I would focus on less training, but just enough to maintain, which is not very much. Focus on getting your fat loss through calories um, and make sure your fats are high enough. This is a situation where I'm like, hey, you got to have bare minimum amount of fat, which is probably going to be like 0.3 for guys, 0.4 grams per pound for women. Uh, but you could even bump that up to 0.4 for guys, 0.5 for women if you have hormone issues. Um, and then getting most of your exercise uh Calorie expenditure through neat, going on walks throughout the day, having a high step count because that's very, very low stress. Um, you can recover. But hormone issues in general kind of boil down to 
sleep more, recover better, train less, eat more. Totally. Like, just recovery. So yeah. cool. So. All right. That is the last question for today. Want to repeat and add to those announcements that you didn't earlier? Yeah. So we talked about a few different coaching things as always tailored coaching method.com slash online dash coaching. Uh, if you want to check out the supplement sponsor, that is first Form, the best supplements in the game, you can head over to firstform.com slash tailored coaching method. And last but not least, for all of your fitness equipment, whether you own a gym or you're training out of your garage, head over to giantlifting.com and use the coupon code TCM10 to save 10% on your order. As always, guys, we appreciate you and we'll catch you next time.